If you were not here last week, I strongly encourage you to go back um, to our website and watch uh, the sermon from last week. I thought Dustin did an incredible job with a difficult, difficult passage, a passage which has baffled many Christians for centuries. And so I thought he did a really good job, and it's going to help you maybe understand this morning better. So if you were here, then this morning should kind of flow a little better. Um, Over the past three weeks... Um, we have seen three evil figures highlighted. Um, three weeks ago, there's a dragon um, who was clearly identified as Satan. Um, and then there was the first beast who comes out of the sea. And then last week, we saw the second beast who comes out of the earth. Well, this morning, we see this transition in our, in our text. We, we are going to see a contrast this morning between the dragon and the lamb. We see a contrast between the two beasts coming out of the sea and out of the earth Um, against the lamb standing on the mountain. So the point of chapter 14 is to show us that God keeps his word. His promises are true. That he will save those who trust in Jesus, and he will judge those who do not worship him as God or give him thanks. So let's turn our attention now to Revelation chapter 14 this morning as we look to the conquering lamb. So let's read these words together and be blessed um, by the reading of Revelation. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the living creatures and before uh, the elders. No one, could, uh, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, Follow them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds followed them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who's, who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as, as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Let's pray together. Um, Father, this morning as we um, read from your word in Revelation, we know that there's a promise here that we are blessed just for reading this word aloud. So we receive that blessing this morning, um, that you have given us your spoken word, that we can know you better, know the things that... that um, that glorify you, the things that move your heart. And Lord, may we um, seek for those things this morning. Lord, there's um, a lot going on in this chapter. Um, we see judgment. We see wrath. And we know the only thing that protects us from that is the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, may we rest in that today, that you have covered us, those of us who are... Um, uh, your children who have repented of our sin and trusted in you. So, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to all of us this, this morning, that those who have never repented, that you would be working in their hearts right now, that, that you would bring them to a place of repentance, to trust in you this morning. Give us ears to hear from you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is a big chapter even though it's we're not at the end that this is the end i mean this is you see here that um this this is a final judgment that's happening so we'll see that kind of play out again when we get to the end of revelation but this is a picture of the end and it's important for us to remember that john is writing to a group of churches who are struggling we saw that back in chapters two and three there's a lot of persecution a lot of a lot of death happening because they Bear the name of Christ. And John had told these churches back in chapter 13, that's the last couple of weeks, that, that Satan is going to make war on them. That was his desire. You remember that? He, he was going to rage war against um, the followers of Christ. He would deceive the world to worship the beast. And now John tells them that Satan will not have the final word. That there's 
another individual that has the final say. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this lamb that conquers all things. And so here's John. He's giving assurance to the redeemed in verses 1 through 5. So that's his aim. He's trying to encourage them. Um, Verses 6 through 13, he warns the wicked to repent. And then we see the final judgment in in verses 14 through 20. Um, We see how this, this final judgment actually unfolds. So over the past several chapters, John has developed this pattern for us. As you're reading, maybe you kind of catch these things. And so one of the things that he's continued to say over these last few chapters is, and then I saw, and then I saw. And so chapter 14 begins with a similar phrase, and then I looked. And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So let's, let's camp out here in verse 1 for a bit. Rather than a beast coming out of the sea or a beast coming out of the earth, here we have a lamb standing on a mountain. Uh, the lamb is obviously Christ. John loves to refer to Jesus as the lamb. We see this early on in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, when John the Baptist, he's He's out baptizing people, and he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the Lamb that John sees here in Revelation 14 is the Lamb of God. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who takes away the sins of the world. And the Lamb, standing on the mountain, he's looking down to the dragon, standing on the sand of the the sea. So there's a, there's a reckoning about to take place in chapter 14. A, a war is about to break out. And if you are in a war, you want to be the one on the mountain, not the one down on the sand. You, you won't actually find um, a literal mountain called Zion in Israel. It's kind of a confusing phrase for many Jews. The word Zion is mentioned 155 times in the Old Testament to refer to the true city of God. So sometimes it could be a reference to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a This is kind of on a mountain. So is he talking about Jerusalem here? So is this final battle happening literally in Jerusalem? It can also um, refer to God's dwelling in the temple or even be a symbol for his people. But it usually refers to the eternal city where God will rule over at the end of history. So it's usually like this future reference to this place. For example, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. I will tell of his decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. So this is a a messianic psalm about Jesus. So this Mount Zion that the lamb is standing on is a reference to the holy hill, his heavenly city. And notice the lamb is not standing alone. He has 144,000 who are with him. We saw this same group of saints back in chapter 7, and we we spent a lot of time that morning on who is the 144,000, but just a quick recap, the 144,000, I believe it's a picture of of the saints throughout all history. And notice that these 144,000 have the Lamb's name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So this is a contrast to last week, to those who dwell on the earth and how they have their father's name written on their forehead. You know, Ephesians chapter 2 tell us that you were dead in your sins, that you had your father, this, 
the sons of disobedience. So Satan used to be your father. So here's this group that we saw last week whose father is still Satan. They have never bowed their knee to, to God. And so they had, they had this 666 on their mind. And that's what Dustin preached on last week. The idea is that whatever you love, that is what's on the forefront of your mind. And I thought Dustin did a great job helping us understand what it means to have something on your forehead. Um, I love how he tied the mark of the beast um, written on the forehead to the Shema back in Deuteronomy 6, where Deuteronomy 6, verses 8 and 9, referring to God's commands, it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the, the idea is that you are laser-focused on the things of God. That's what's at the forefront of your mind. Um, he is at the front of your mind. The people of God has its mind focused on the things of God. The world has its mind focused on the things of this world. So this is everything that John sees in verse 1. And in verse 2, we read what John hears. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Way back in chapter 1, John hears the voice of Jesus, and it was like the roar of many waters. Now here in chapter 14, John hears a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. This describes a loud, overpowering voice. The redeemed here no longer seem to be outnumbered and weak. Now they roar. The voice John hears was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. Notice how no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, if I'm honest, this kind of picture here is a little bit strange to me. You've got you know, these saints of all generations playing these harps, singing this new song, getting ready to go to battle. If you put yourself in the story for a moment, this battle is getting ready to happen, and the pregame music that's been set for them to get them ready for battle, it's a bunch of harps playing. There's nothing that would get me more amped for battle than the sound of of harps, right? I mean, do you know how many NFL teams come out to harps ablazing? Maybe just the Cowboys, but other than that, that's a, that's a shot at you Cowboy fans. But what we find out later is that the 144,000 don't go to battle anyways. So they don't need to get ready to go to war. The, the music here isn't to motivate them for battle, but to sing a new song to the Lord. The redeemed are singing this, this new song just like we saw back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, when the heavenly court, they sang a new song when Jesus took the scroll. It seems like when you just kind of, kind of do this observation of Revelation, it seems like anytime there's this new act of conquest, then there is a call for new songs of praise. So I, I love this picture here. 
They sing this new song, and then notice the exclusivity of this song. Only those who have been sealed, those who have been redeemed, can learn this song. There will not be any Hindus, any Buddhists, or any Muslims singing this song, nor will there be any good moral people singing this song. In fact, they cannot learn this song. Only those who put genuine faith in Jesus will sing the song. And then in verses 4 and 5, we, we see four characteristics or attributes of these singers. Those who are singing, these saints, it says this about them in verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouths no lie was found, for they are blameless. So the first description of these singers, it's a bit strange. It says that they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. The point here is not that these people have never married, or that it's just talking about men, meaning that, you know, since they've kept themselves from women. So this is not just 144,000, just men. Um, this is figurative language. It's figurative language which describes that the, the saints from all time as being pure. They are, they are holy. They are set apart. They did not defile themselves with sexual immorality of the world. Notice down in verse 8. Just drop down a few verses. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. So remember how, how the beast wants to deceive you. My goodness, can you just, I mean, there's probably no greater um, market of, 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 of influence than the sexual culture of this world. I mean, it, it's what sells. I mean, that's a phrase, sex sells. And so here, this angel is warning Babylon, the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. So here the redeemed refused to, to drink the wine of sexual morality, of Babylon's worldliness. So Babylon is this reference to the world or culture or nations. And so these virgins seem to be those who have kept themselves free of the seductions of the world. They, you know, these things were dangled out in front of them, but they kept their eyes focused on Christ, not the seductions. So the picture here is that the church is not shacking up with the world. That's this picture here. She is staying pure for her groom to come. Remember, we're kind of in this betrothal period. We're engaged to Christ. We're waiting on his return. So while we're waiting, our eyes are fixed on Christ, not this world. We're not being seduced. So basically, this first description of the 144,000 means that they were pure in their devotion to God and abstained from worldliness. They did not commit spiritual adultery against him. Does this describe you this morning? Are you pure in your devotion to God? Or do you have eyes for other things? Now, if we're honest this morning, we could all say, yes. We've all played that role of the adulterers. 
there are many good things that can take our eyes off of God. Jobs, families, hobbies. Those things aren't necessarily evil. But when those things are on our foreheads, when that is what we focus on, then we have committed spiritual adultery against God and we need to repent right now and ask him to forgive us. John's second description of these 144,000 is also found in verse 4. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. The lamb is Jesus. Jesus leads through his word. And he has given us clear commands in the Bible to follow. Following Jesus keeps you from being deceived by the beast, who looks like a lamb but talks like a dragon. Following shows action. I think so many in our culture, if you asked, you know, and you just go to, go to your workplace, go to the neighborhood, watch TV. When people are asked, are you a Christian? Many people in America would say, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. I would identify as a Christian. But if you ask that same group of people, if they're followers of Jesus, um, you know, I don't think the same group of people would answer in the affirmative. Being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus are the exact same thing. It's not like one is greater than the other. You cannot say you are a Christian and not also identify as a follower of Christ. That's what a Christian means. Christians follow Jesus. That's the whole purpose. So this makes zero sense to, to, to say you're a Christian and not be a follower. How well are you following Jesus this morning? Are you following Jesus wherever he goes by obeying his commands? We know where he goes and where he wants us to go by reading his word. Always mark his, like, don't just trust what people up here say. Always make sure it aligns and matches with Scripture, okay? If you hear me say, the Lord says, and I'm not talking about from Scripture, that should be a red flag to you, okay? The Lord speaks to us through his word. It's very dangerous when you hear me say, God said to me, and the very next thing out of my mouth isn't a reference from Scripture, okay? Um, I'm listening to, as many of you have pointed me to this podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. My goodness, listen to this podcast. Um, right now, there's four episodes. They're about, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe an hour long, I think, somewhere around there. They're so good. Mars Hill is a story of a church um, that was out in Seattle. It's a huge, massive church um, that, um, I mean, it was, had a huge rise and then had even a more epic fall. Um, and so a lot of those things, I think they were following what the leader was saying and not really following what God was saying. And so make sure that whoever's up here, um, or if you're a guest this morning and you have another home church, make sure your church is following what God says, not just what man says. And so we are marked as those who follow Jesus, not follow man. The third description found here of these 144,000 is at the end of verse 4. It says, these 
have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Notice that they did not redeem themselves, okay? They did not secure their own salvation. God redeemed them. God saved them through Jesus. If you are redeemed this morning, you are redeemed for God and the Lamb. Notice that here. You have a purpose. You're not redeemed just to sit on your hands and be good pew sitters and chair sitters. I don't want to forget you again in the back. You have a purpose in life. Your purpose is for God, to be these first fruits for God and the Lamb. If you are redeemed, then you are to live like you are an offering consecrated to God. As Paul puts it, like a living sacrifice. Then the last attribute of these redeemed is found in verse 5. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Christians, followers, the redeemed, tell the truth. That's who we are. We are people of truth. So these redeemed, they tell the truth, but the dragon lies about who made the world and what it is for. They redeem, or they, the redeemed tell the truth, but the dragon uses the false prophet to deceive. Notice the connection here between blameless and speaking the truth. The Bible never presents blamelessness as something that results from perfect obedience or absolute sinlessness. That's not what blamelessness means. Blamelessness results from the gospel. Those who believe in Jesus, repent of their sin, and trust in his death on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. Those are the blameless. Blameless means you are constantly living a life of repentance. That's what it means. That's why you can see in Scripture, like, Job was a blameless man. doesn't mean he was perfect. He was just blameless. So this is what the 144,000 look like. And now we see a warning to those who don't look like this. We see a warning for them to repent. Let's look down at verse 6 as we see the first of three angels coming with a message. So the word angel, it could, it could be translated, maybe your Bible is translated as messenger. So these angels bring a message. The messenger brings a message. So let's look at these three messages. Verse 6, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The first angel comes proclaiming the eternal gospel to every nation and tribe and language and people. The gospel message is for everyone. This excludes the possibility of like local truths. You know, like maybe you, you hear this kind of thinking, like, like Christianity is the local truth for the West. Um, you know, Islam is a local truth for the Middle East. Um, Hinduism is a local truth for India. That's not what this says. This is for everyone. This shoots that down. This means that the gospel is the everlasting good news for the Muslims in the Middle East, 
for the Buddhists in Southeast Asia, for Hindus in India, and even for the atheists and the enlightened in the West. The gospel is for them. They don't have some other way to God. The only way they will know God is by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the gospel message in verse 7. Look what he says. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is why like, there's not the local truth because there's no local God. This is the God of all creation. It's a pretty simple message overall if you look at it and just kind of break it down. You see God, he's the creator. God made all that is. Because of this, God alone is to be feared. God alone is to be worshipped. And God alone will be judge. The second angel's message is found in verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the, the, the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. So we spent some time, we looked at this verse earlier, but this is the dragon's universal message. This is what the dragon offers the world. So the previous message was a universal message. This is a universal message being deceived from the dragon from Babylon. The second angel's message is a warning and a call to repentance. It warns the world to either flee from Babylon or share in her destruction. That's it. It commands us to repent of our attempts to combine the, the pleasures of God with the pleasures of the world. God and the world are like oil, oil and water. They just do not mix. May we repent of our worldliness. And, and we all have pockets of worldliness where things of the world catches our eye and we kind of stray after. We have to constantly repent of those things. The message of the third angel is found in verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. The third angel proclaims punishment that God will bring uh, on those that, that worship the beast. For a while, a, a, a short while, things like idolatry, identifying with the world, the things of the flesh. They may make your life better, but there will be an absolute terrible price to pay, according to this verse. The full strength of God's cup is poured out upon those individuals. So here's the deal. Either you will take the full cup of God's wrath or you can trust that Christ took that cup for you. That was a part of his prayer in the garden. Remember this prayer? Before he went to the cross? He was praying in the garden. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus took the full cup of wrath from his father so then you and I wouldn't have to. What, what's baffling to me is that he takes that wrath and, and instead of being angry at us because of what he had to do because of your sin and my sin, you know, instead of being angry because he took that, he, he, he extends his invitation to embrace and receive his his blessings, his grace, his righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel this morning. Jesus took the full cup of the wrath of God so that you and I wouldn't have to. Will you embrace Christ's substitutionary work on the cross for your sin? Or will you be too stubborn to receive his grace? I've got good moral people in my life that the only thing that's keeping them from embracing Christ's substitutionary work on the cross is just, it seems like just pure stubbornness. They, 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 would, they would agree that Christ died for their sins. They, they believe that he did all these things. But they won't embrace him. And they won't allow him to take that wrath that they deserve. Three separate angels, three separate messages. Each message is meant to help believers to endure and, and to call the unbelievers to repentance. Verse 12 continues this theme of endurance. Look, look at this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are, are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Verse 12 defines what it means to endure. To endure means you are someone who, who keeps present tense keeps the commandments of God, and keeps their faith in Jesus. It's a very simple definition of endurance. You're someone who keeps. You, you keep the commandments, you keep the faith. Then we see a blessing in verse 13. Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Those who die in the Lord will be blessed. Blessed indeed. Here's the logic that John is showing us in, um, from Revelation 14. You ready for this? I'm glad you're all sitting down. Everyone dies. That's his point here. Chapter 13, chapter 14. Everyone dies. Either the government, chapter 13, kills you for not worshiping the beast, or... God kills you for worshiping the beast. Chapter 14. Everyone dies. So chapter 14 ends with these two harvests. There's a harvest of grain in 14 through 16 and a harvest of grapes, 17 through 20. So let's look at these and close this morning. Then I looked and behold a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head 
and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he who called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Two harvests. The first harvest is of grain. The second harvest is of grapes. I think the first harvest stands in contrast with the second harvest. I will say, though, that some have argued that they're actually both harvests of judgments. But I think they're talking about two different harvests, and let me give you a few reasons why. First, I think they're different because these 144,000 that were described back in verse 4, they're described as first fruits. These first fruits describe an offering, not a judgment. So I think here this first harvest is referencing, you know, this 144,000, these saints. Second, the harvesters are different. Here we see the Son of Man, which is Jesus. Jesus harvests, seems like he harvests the righteous. Then the other angel harvests the wicked. Third, this matches the judgment of the righteous whose names are in the book of life later in chapter 20. So in chapter 20, you're going to see these two kind of separations as well. Um, So this is kind of common. Um, Even in the Gospels, you see like the wheat from the tare. So this seems like this might be what this is. So there's like this separation from the righteous, from the unrighteous. We'll see that again from the book of life in chapter 20. So I think this first harvest here is a, is a gathering of, of, this is Christ removing the righteous from, you know, this is the wheat from the tare, in a sense. Now, no one debates the second harvest. It clearly represents judgment for the unbelievers. We see in verse 19 that the grapes were thrown into the great, great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trodden outside the city. Blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This harvest reminds us of our mission. We gather on Sundays to be encouraged, but we go back out into the world. We don't just sit in here. It's kind of why we, we don't do a lot of programs here throughout the I don't want you in the building every night. Why? Because of this. There, there's a harvest that's coming. The fields are white for harvest. Others have labored, and we get to reap what others have sowed. We need to be out in the fields. We don't need to be gathered in here every day of the week. 
We guard Sunday mornings to be encouraged, to make much of Christ, and to be sent back out on this commission. God does the saving. It's amazing that he allows us the privilege of being his hands and feet. Notice the urgency with the harvest. The harvest is ripe, but there's this angel who is going to bring the sickle, and at that moment, when he swipes, all of our opportunities will be over. It's done. All these plans, you know, I'll call them next week. You know, I'll reach out to them later. There's no more later. That's it. That's what chapter 14 is telling us. Those that you love, who, who haven't bowed their knee to Christ, it's done. Once this harvest happens, it's done. It will be too late. Now, I'm just guessing here, but this second harvest might be where, like, you know, like that, the legendary character, the, the grim reaper. I, I wonder if this is where he comes from. You know, this, this grim reaper, he's like this angel of death. And notice here that the only place of refuge here is in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross so God can justly show mercy to sinners. Only those who trust in Jesus will be forgiven all their sins. If you are not trusting in Jesus, or if you are trusting in him and deeply love someone who isn't, consider these implications of this true grim reaper. He comes to bring the wrath of God. He comes to call the wicked to account. He comes to harvest the fruit of their deeds. What the unrighteous have sown shall be reaped. They will not escape. You can't hide. They will not be overlooked. They have rejected their only chance for mercy. There will be no place to hide. Notice the blood, it flows as high as a horse is tall. 1,600 stadia. Now, I had to look this up because I don't use stadia when I'm building things at the house. So how, what is the stadia? Well, it, it's, it's, it's almost about 200 miles. And some commentaries mentioned it was, it's almost, interestingly, it's like the length of, of the land of Israel. So it, it, it's, it's, it will be a full display of God's wrath. But it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus gives us the good news. The good news is that Jesus drank the whole cup. He took all of God's wrath. No one who trusts in Jesus has to drink the wine of God's wrath because Jesus drank that cup for us. Now we have the joy to go tell others this good news. What about you this morning? Do you plan to drink this cup yourself? Or will you bow your knee and allow Jesus to drink it for you? That he took the wrath of God so that you would not have to take it. What that means is you just confess of your sins. You trust that Jesus did all that he said he did and he is who he says he is. And he's coming back to reign. And you stop being the Lord of your life. You stop having eyes for this world, and you have eyes for him. That's what it's kind of all wrapped up in the gospel message. If that's you this morning, 
we would love to help you learn how to follow him, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. One step is baptism. We'd love to talk to you about being baptized. If you've never been baptized, let me know. We'd love to, to do that, help you in that. It's a simple step of obedience. We all have individuals on our mind who have not bowed their knee. God's going to put you in places this week around those whom he loves, whom he's called, set apart to be his. And it's our joy and privilege and honor to you loved us enough to take the full cup of your father's wrath so that we who were living in rebellion would not have to drink that cup. So may that news fill us up. May it motivate us to go tell others about your kindness and your mercies. Lord, may we not be lazy. May we not be consumed with Babylon, distracted from all the worldly opportunities that keep us busy and to keep our mouths from sharing the good news. So may we go out this week emboldened. Lord, if there's any in this room that who have never put their trust in you, I pray that you would convict them, that they would live just with heavy conviction until they are just miserable, until they confess of their sin and are set free from their sin. That weight is gone. They experience the freedom in you. May we embrace you May we have eyes for you and you alone. I pray all this in your name. Amen.